Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast where I cover a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker or movement in each episode. If you can hear um, some strange noises, I have a baby in a sling sleeping on me and I'm bouncing on a yoga ball. Uh, My wife's ill, so (laughs) um, yeah, Uh, and it was a question of do I record this intro now and uh, risk a few little baby noises or wait I don't know how long to put it up and I decided to just go ahead and do it um at the moment he's quiet so yeah uh just thought I'd mention that in case you hear anything so anyway this um episode is about battle royales this is a the video game genre as as opposed to the film battle royale though I will also be doing an episode uh, on the film uh, in the relatively near future so so that is coming but yeah this one would explain where it gets the conversation with my guest would explain exactly what battle royales are if you don't know but um yeah basically a genre very to put it very simply a, a multiplayer game multiplayer genre where lots of people kind of fight fight to be the last one left standing um in a map that gets ever smaller and like one person or one team wins that's the the basis of it, but we'll explain a bit more when we when we get to the conversation. Yeah, these these this genre, you may be even if you haven't played it or aren't particularly familiar with video games, you may well have heard of Fortnite, which has been particular particularly popular uh, among young people. Um, Apex Legends is the most recent one, but yeah, it's really um, exploded recently, and I thought it would be interesting to think about uh, why that might be and what kind of things we might be able to read into this um provisionally dystopian um idea which obviously comes from the the name for the genre comes from battle royale a dystopian film where kids are forced to to fight to the death on an island but um yeah as we'll get to in the conversation as well i think it's something interesting about the way that this um apparently if you describe it this apparently dystopian idea is actually presented and experienced and it's not necessarily uh dystopian as you might expect so that's something we'll get into but uh yeah my my guest on this episode is cameron kunzelman you can probably hear the baby there um he is someone that um i'm primarily familiar with through his games writing and his um podcast game study study buddies uh where him and his co-host go through some um sort of academic uh, text on video games which has been interesting and he also has kind of a network thing I guess you'd call it called Range Touch so video series on um, Baldur's Gate is and Baldur's Gate like games as part of that for example and yeah Cameron is very um, perceptive and knowledgeable when it comes to video games I think he's got some really perceptive things to say about the, the genre of battle royales as you're here just one more thing to mention, the pace of the podcast is going to pick up significantly over the next few weeks or so, or the next couple of months. Um, I've got a lot of episodes already planned in, um, so yeah, things are going to be coming a lot thicker and faster than than they have in the past um, for now. It's something of a, 
I don't know, risk for me or a stupid thing to do and that I'm taking a bit of extra time out of my normal work to spend more time in the podcast. Um, whether or not I can sort of continue to do that or not, it depends on the amount of support I get on patreon.com slash utopian horizons. Thank you very much to those of you who already support me on there. But if you find over the next, um, over the next few weeks, uh, next few months, next couple of months as the episodes come out a bit quicker that you'd like to, that pace to continue, then please consider, um, yeah, visiting the Patreon and supporting me on there so I can, can keep doing that. Um, and you'll get access to loads of bonus episodes that are up on there as well. So, yeah, just wanted to mention that. Um, I will leave it there. Onto my conversation with Cameron. Joining me now is Cameron Kunzelman. Thank you very much for joining me, Cameron. Thanks for having me. Um, so Cameron is an academic who is interested in video games. He writes about video games. Um, he has a site called Range Touch, which does videos and podcasts about games, uh, which includes a podcast that I'm listening to at the moment called Game Studies Study Buddies. And you just told me on one of our abandoned, screwed up uh, technical problem intros that you make games sometimes as well. Mm-hmm. Correct. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we this is a bit different um, to other episodes in terms of normally picking like you know like one novel or one film or something. But today we're talking about um, a genre, which is um, battle royales. Which, even if you're not directly familiar with them, you've probably heard about them in some form, given the, the popularity of them at the moment um cameron could you uh sort of for, for those people who are listening who um i've said this before i think a lot of my audience play video games but i, I don't think all of them do so for those who, who don't know could you kind of explain at a basic level what a battle royale is yeah sure um I, people if you're in the world of video games or even around it you've probably encountered something like a battle royale before even if you don't know um they're kind of large multiplayer although i don't think we'd call them massive multiplayer games uh in which a whole bunch of people in some way shape or form jump out of an airplane generally (laughs) yeah and then land on the ground and then have to loot um so you gotta go through all these different locations um and you find equipment and guns and then you use those guns to slowly whittle down 100 players or 64 players or somewhere in between down to one player or one team um and so they're this kind of game that's um brendan green who i'm sure we'll talk about in just a minute um who was the lead developer on player unknown's battlegrounds he is in fact player unknown um has said that PUBG or so PUBG is the word that we that we use yeah. um, for player unknowns battlegrounds. Um, he said that PUBG is uh, meant to be kind of a simulation of a like the world's best paintball game and paintball arena. Um, mm. And I think that's a good way of thinking of it. Uh, a whole bunch of people enter and one person or one team leaves. Um, and there's a lot of game design in between those two things. But but that's the general idea. Okay, so let's just so you've mentioned one of the the main examples that people might have heard of um, player on those battlegrounds. Uh, I think most people probably would have heard of Fortnite, even if mm-hmm. just through like uh, yeah, if if you've got kids or around anyone with kids, then you you must have heard them talking about it in some form. Um, and Apex Legends, which is kind of the the latest one at the moment. I mean, do you see any sort of key differences between... I mean, we're saying they're all the same thing, but there are differences in the way they feel and the way they play, right? 
Yeah, uh, there there's this uh, article from a few years ago, and and uh, he maintains that there's better work out there, but I'm not quite sure that there is yet still, um, or, or there's nothing that has toppled this article um, for me as far as like clearly saying it. But there's a, a games academic named Tom Apperly who wrote a piece about game genres, um, and he says that game genres are kind of about mode of interaction more than they are um, about you know, actual content, right? So you can have an mm-hmm. action game that has all the things of horror cinema in it, but you can also have an action game that's Indiana Jones inspired or something like that. Um, and so a battle royale game is a genre in the video game sense in that the content of it is wildly different. Um, well, to some degree, <laughs> it's wildly different in between them. Um, but the flavor of all of these, the actual content and the kind of world that you're interacting with uh, across all of them is a little bit different. So, yeah, in our notes, we've got PUBG, which is kind of not the originator of the idea, but certainly the first big splash. And it's 100 mm-hmm. people. You enter into a place called Erangel. People called it Murder Island for a long time before it had an official name. Um, and it's a simulationist or as close as you can get it's tactical you can crouch you can lie down on the ground you can crawl along the ground it's kind of meant for that mode of thinking and mode of interaction you know the idea of you lay on a hill one way of playing the game is to lie down on on a hill and to look through your very long range scope and then shoot people from very far away um Hmm. it's it's a very sorry to interrupt i was just kidding i I haven't uh, actually played PUBG, but i get the sense it's uh slower paced than the other ones absolutely yeah I've, I've actually written quite a few pieces um i think one of the first pieces i wrote about uh battle royale games uh for waypoint i wrote about kind of the slowness of of PUBG. this is maybe two marches ago or something like that and then i wrote a piece for kotaku last year um when Fortnite really got going about why i think that that PUBG is a better experience because it is this kind of more contemplative, tactical, slower paced kind of thing. Now that game comes out and basically the YouTuber community of the world um, Mm. and a number of different players, but I think the pressure really did come from YouTube here uh, and YouTube content makers. Um, they're, they liked playing the game, but they didn't like that slowness. Um, They didn't necessarily like this kind of more tactical, I don't know, quality to the game. It was also plagued by Mm. bugs. That's a big part of it. So when Fortnite comes around, Fortnite is the same idea. A lot of people drop into a map. Um, Instead of being kind of counter-strikey tactical, it's a little bit more loose. It's a little bit more fun. There's building involved, so you can build, like, tactical structures to to help you, um, you know, uh, protect against enemies and things like that. And so Fortnite really explodes in popularity uh, when you were saying that, uh, you know, anyone who has kids or is around people with kids or or is generally kind of paying attention to the zeitgeist probably knows a little bit about Fortnite. That's because it, it really does become one of the biggest games on the planet in a very, very short amount of time. And really, it's just taking all the things that people really enjoyed about PUBG and then smoothing out some of the, um, I don't know, less less player friendly um uh, i don't know it, it it makes it a little bit more uh wide appealing in a lot of different ways uh some of that's mm. just pure aesthetics right it's yeah. more fun looking <laughs> yeah sure and yeah like you say mi- uh, missing a lot of the bugs and stuff that are within pubg as well yeah um and then yeah apex legends which is the one that 
that I've been playing. Yeah, kind of, I guess it does a bit of that as well in terms of very slick and polished and adds some cool new ideas. Like it's got, um, it's got a ping system, which basically lets you um, ping like objects or uh, items or locations, which is a really, yeah, really intuitive way of like communicating with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess I should ask it. Do, do you, uh, do you like these games? Um, first of all, and uh, if so, what's the kind of, what do you think the kind of appeal is? Well, I write a lot about them. <laughs> so, so hopefully, uh, no, I do like them. I think they're really, really neat as a genre. I like, you know, I, I think I'll probably play with my cards revealed to some degree here. I think that uh, PUBG is probably the best these games get and everything else is sacrificing something special, I think, about the genre in order to make the games more appealing to a wider audience and to some degree that's just better i I mean like it's hard to say that that's bad but but yeah i mean i like this kind of slow contemplative i like the idea that in in PUBG you can play for 20 minutes and have your game ended in two seconds with a firefight from some with someone or in a firefight with someone from very far away who you just can't see and return fire to i think there's something really special about that that kind of game experience that you can't get anywhere else um, whereas I think part of the reason that Fortnite or Apex Legends or even uh, Call of Duty Blackout, which is the the Battle Royale mode for Call of Duty 4, which I think really did do a lot, much like Fortnite did, to break the genre open to, to more people, um, those things are trying to make the, these games feel less unfair. They're trying to make them feel a little bit more uh, equitable in the sense of, like, you can at least respond to bad things that are happening to you. But but yeah, mm. I like the, these games, but I like the tone and the feeling of those games and, and of, of PUBG in particular. And sadly, I think that some of that has fallen out, at least. Okay, fair enough. So yeah, something that um, something a question that I kind of want to pose, but not necessarily answer now is I think it it's interesting to think about why these games might be so popular, aside from the fact that they're fun. Um, maybe that's the only answer but uh hopefully there's, there's something more to go into there and you know what kind of you know popular genre fiction in whatever form it might be in often taps into certain anxieties or, or trends and so on so i think it might be interesting to think about what some of those might be um one of the, the, the one of the places i wanted to, wanted to start with was something you already mentioned which was is kind of where these um where these games came from which, um, as you suggested, PUBG was kind of the first big one, but it originally emerged. They emerged kind of out of the um, mod scene mm-hmm. for, in particular, DayZ, which is kind of a um, survival game. It's got similar elements to Battle Royale in that you start on, on a map and you don't have any items. You have to scavenge for everything. Um, more sort of PUBG-ish in terms of the simulation focus of like having to bandage up wounds if you get injured and that type of thing. But yeah, it was a it was a zombie game originally. There were uh, and you had to try and survive among the zombies. That was the the original idea. But I think the reason these mods. So yeah, sorry, Brenda Green. He mentioned made a Daisy Battle Royale mod. I think the reason that kind of emerged is 
I think quite soon people realized that the zombies weren't really the interesting thing. Um, it was very soon that kind of idea of it being a zombie survivor thing faded into the background and the focus became on the other players that were in the world as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, were you a Daisy player? No, I, I do own Daisy and I, I did play it, but I kind of, uh, I kind of jumped in just a bit too late <laughs> when people mm-hmm. were sort of, you know, not really playing it anymore. So, but I, I, I'd been meaning to play it for a long time and I've really, fa- I was really fascinated by the kind of experience. It's similar to kind of what you're talking about, PUBG, I think, you know, potentially long periods of time without encountering somebody and kind of being on edge and anxious about, you know, something happening and then suddenly everything can kind of explode at a moment. Yeah. I mean, I, the, this lineage to me is very interesting and, and the kind of, I, I think what makes me so attracted to these games or a certain part of the genre is that I can trace the kinds of experiences that I had that I've had in these games that are unique to these games. Mm-hmm. So I played Daisy when it was just an Arma three mod, um, and I've got I was lucky enough to play that maybe within the first two or three weeks of it going live, and it was incredibly difficult to play. You had to own Arma three, <laughs> you had to like uh, download this mod and install it, and then just hope that there are servers up for it. But but something that's kind of unbroken for me uh, as far as uh, gameplay experience or like aesthetic experience even is that in DayZ, what was so special and interesting about that game is that zombies, you know, were the backdrop, but really it was about player interaction, like you're saying. Mm. And so you could get in these situations where there, you know, you're lying down in a room um, and you can hear like two or three people stalking through the bottom floor. Mm. Uh, you know, underneath you and you have this choice to be like, all right, do I think I can take them in a firefight? We're, we're all very weak, you know, um, we're, we're, we're paper thin. I could die immediately. Or do I try to yell to them and surrender and, or do I try to run away or what do I do? And, and that is something that still happens in PUBG, um, which is fascinating, right? You just turn your all chat on. And if you're one person in a room, you can maybe try to negotiate. Um, cause if they try to get up on that second floor, you can probably take one of them down. Mm. Um, and so that's a really special kind of experience. And I've had really great moments like that where I've been able to say things like, all right, I'm going to drop my gun and I'm going to run away. Please don't kill me. And then sometimes people will just play along. Mm. Um, and that's really special. That's just not something that happens in Apex Legends or Call of Duty. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there, there are more, because of player interaction, there are more verbs. Um, in, in, in game criticism and in game design, we talk about verbs uh, and nouns, right? So verb, shoot, uh, run, sprint, uh, hide, things like that. And there are just more verbs that are available to you in PUBG and, and its predecessor like um, DayZ than there are in, in Call of Duty or Apex Legends. And uh, that, that, so that's something I think is really special about those that has been lost in the diversification of the genre. Mm. That's interesting. Um, but yeah, that's, that's not the, the Daisy's not the kind of only example of the game that, that followed that, that path. So um, H1Z1, which was kind of a, a Daisy copy, basically ended up hiring Brendan Green, who made the, the Daisy Battle Royale mod to make a Battle Royale mode for that game. Fortnite mm-hmm. actually originally was a zombie game with the some of the building stuff in that you mentioned before. And then, yeah, it wasn't particularly successful. And then they kind of saw the Battle Royale thing and shifted over into that. 
So yeah, I just thought there was something interesting that that all these games kind of emerged from like a zombie survival thing and ended up sort of jettisoning jettisoning the, the zombies. Which so you can obviously partly explain that in terms of the kind of stuff that you were talking about, the the things that were interesting in the game, like the the, the interesting moments that the systems created, other things that people focused in on, and that's actually the thing that you know would evolve people focusing on the interesting parts but but what's interesting to me is that that is something we've also seen in other fiction as well so the walking dead tv series for example that's obviously a tv series uh ostensibly about zombies but quite quickly the, the zombies become kind of a, a background element so I was speaking to someone about this. Who I, who I, um, I was speaking to uh, Laura Winter, who's someone I know who's uh, doing a, a PhD and um, writing about uh, dystopian TV. And yeah, she said to me that the walkers have progressively turned into an almost manageable permanent otherness slash estrangement that the survivors have learned to adapt to. So it's the same kind of thing that they just as with Daisy when they you know shifted to the back and then obviously they haven't disappeared from the walking dead but again with the walking dead the focus is on the interaction between the other people so yeah there's a move away from this zombie other to like us as being part of the threat and kind of implicating in us i just wondered if you had any ideas on what might account for that or you know why that might be happening yeah. Um I mean one number this this is this is uh not the fun theory answer but I think this is a, a big one. Um it's harder to simulate a whole bunch of zombies as well yeah, as, sure. as people who are interacting. So if you played Daisy, um you know, part of the problem in that game is that the server needs to be communicating the position of a bunch of different zombies to all the players who can see those zombies at one time. Um, And so if you have different players who are connected with different um, internet speeds, for example, right, if their ping is radically different, then, then depending where they believe those zombies are, where their computers believe those zombies are, that's going to create a lot of conflicting information. Um, and so rubber in the original mod for, for Daisy, rubber banding with those zombies, right? They're teleporting around all the time was a huge, huge problem. Um, so I think one one part of it is mostly um, programmatical, right? Or, or computational. So that, that's like mm-hmm. one answer. My real answer <laughs> is that uh, that yeah, in the in the same way that in The Walking Dead, that there has become this kind of stable state of zombies. Like the zombies had to be there initially, and I think this is true for these games as well. The zombies had to be there so that these people could prove that they were extraordinary. And so now that they have proved that they are extraordinary, you don't need that basic kind of reminder. Hey, they are superhuman they're better than the average human being despite us constantly talking about how they're all people just like you and me but you know they're not rick is not like us um he's some sort of superhuman person i think Mm -hmm. once that is established in say the walking dead then you can kind of sideline a lot of the zombie focused content i think the same thing happens in in PUBG. i think that's the big move it's to say that look the zombies were a trivial mechanic Players have already proved themselves to be more superhuman than that mechanic. So then, therefore, let's let's cut this to the bone and um, deliver the thing that that people really want. Um, I, have you seen any of the PUBG zombies um, 
I don't know, mode or side game. Mm-hmm. Oh, so that's a fascinating thing that that's kind of reintroducing the zombie thing. So basically, um, you set it up as a private server or multiplayer server, and only certain community members or whatever, you know, uh, people who are chosen by the corporation, uh, PUBG Corp, only those talk about a dystopian name, by the way, PUBG Corp. <laughs> Um, but, uh, only those people have access to it. So they create a private server and I think they can go up to like 140 people. I don't know why I believe that, but I think you can go, you can go above the 100 mark. And the idea is you have a team of players who can loot and pick things up and do all the normal stuff that a PUBG player can do. And you, everyone else in the whole game is a zombie. Um, Uh. and so they try to drop at the same locations or no, maybe they spawn on the ground. I actually think they spawn on the ground. Um, and then they only have their hands. And so then they, they try to beat up, uh, with melee attacks, the one team of like true people. And of course, all those zombies are controlled by fans or other players or whatever. So you end up with this weird thing where zombies fell out, but in order to prove that certain YouTubers are more superhuman than anyone else, they've actually reintroduced zombies back in. Um, and I think that has some interesting theoretical implications as well. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. What you know? What is a what is a subscriber in in the case of this game mode? It's a it's a zombie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, an interesting um, kind of uh, representation of the power relations of mm-hmm. YouTube and subscriber. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who's a producer? It's someone who produces uh, bullets from the barrel of a gun. <laughs> yeah. So these 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 kind of scenarios that we we're talking about in all these games. Well, it sounds pretty obviously dystopian, right? Uh, in terms of you know you've got to oh, we're talking about some you know zombie apocalypses and we're talking about people um having to fight to the death in an enclosed situation mm-hmm. um which yeah should should be dystopian um and they they all have this this background in terms of their like so none of these games really have a, a story as such but they all have like a very bare minimal fictional justification for why the thing is taking place so as we mentioned, the original mods, it's like a zombie apocalypse thing. Um, PUBG is an abandoned island uh, occupied by the Russian military who performed chemical and biological tests on the population there. Fortnite, as we mentioned, was originally a, a zombie game. So again, the, the zombie apocalypse thing. Apex Legends is, that's kind of meant to be a, a blood sport that's emerged out of the context of, uh, the, the vacuum of a kind of devastating war that's like forced people to leave their homes and, and it's created kind of in this rough frontier where they've ended up. It's kind of created the context for this, yeah, blood sport for people who are kind of used to conflict. So they all have some kind of like dystopian backdrop to them, but none of them, I don't think are ex- well, maybe you have a different view on PUBG. I haven't played it, so I don't know. But from what I've seen, certainly Apex Legends, they're not experienced as dystopian, which is a big... Something which we've somehow uh, managed to not mention up to this point um, is the, the film Battle Royale, which is obviously where the name <laughs> for this... I should have mentioned that at the beginning. But yeah, that's obviously where the name for this um, genre comes from. Same kind of setup in, in the film of people fighting to the uh, to the death until there's one left. But yeah, if you watch Battle Royale, that's clearly meant to be depicted um, depicted as a dystopia. You're meant to experience it as such. The people who are in the film experience it as such. But 
Um, would it be fair to say that that's not how they're experienced in games? Yeah, it's really bizarre. Um, and I'll be honest, I think that the Hunger Games have a lot to do with this. Um, this is something that we didn't talk about in the lineage, just because I didn't really think about it at the time. Um, and it's kind of inside baseball, unless you're like into this particular thing. But in the Minecraft modding community, after the Hunger Games came out, there was a huge just explosion of people playing and creating Hunger Games mods for Minecraft that just replicated the Hunger Games. And it was they were PvP games. You can go watch videos of them on YouTube. They're they're really interesting. Um, but but yeah, I think somewhere so so Brendan Green and, and other modders in Arma and around Daisy and things like that thought to implement uh, Battle Royale, something that is like the the film Battle Royale or the book Battle Royale. And then simultaneously at the same time, there was a much younger, um, much younger players and much younger content being generated, generated content, YouTube content being generated for a much younger audience around the Hunger Games, which is, you know, basically the same thing uh, as far as gameplay is concerned. Um, and I think those two things kind of dovetailing in games culture, you know, writ large probably had something to do with it. Um, but weirdly enough, that's also dystopian and um, it's not experienced as is dystopian at all. Um, I mean, I think that this is the video games are by and large, their narratives are dystopian, right? I mean, this is something you and I have both written about in various capacities, and they take for granted that individuals um, who are almost always the player are going to be heroic, and they're going to overcome the conditions around them, and those conditions are going to be destructive and trying to destroy mm -hmm. them. That is the heart of dystopian genre kind of work, uh, especially in the contemporary period. And so I think just because of um, the way that video games tend to view their players just in that simple way, it has to take on a dystopian tone. That said, those video games have to think of those people as heroic individuals, right? They have to think of them as important and singular and able to change the world. And so it creates a weird scenario in which dystopias end up getting solved, or dystopia ends up being kicked down the road. We, we don't have time to think about the actual implications of it within the game. And so we're just going to kind of sit in it. And so dystopia is, unlike in dystopian fiction or in dystopian film, where, you know, if you watch something like Elysium, which, you know, people have strong opinions on one way or the other, um, but I think does a very good job of, of demonstrating contemporary dystopia. That is something that is thinking through that dystopia, right? Like, that's an object of thought. Dystopia is the setting for a number of video games and, and certainly these kind of BR things. Um, but dystopia is not the object of thought. Mm. Um, they're, they're not considering it in any way and not really playing it out. And that's kind of what my waypoint column that I do every week. Um, a good portion of those are just trying to think through that issue. Like, what is going on here where we keep producing these things with dystopian symptoms? Or if you're familiar with dystopia, you would easily label it dystopia. And yet video games, by and large, just run away from actually thinking through that problem um, in any significant way. Mm. They, Yeah, I think all these instances... The, um... As I say, Apex is the only one I've I've played directly, but sort of you know what I've watched and what I've seen and what people are talking about there. These are like dystopias that are kind of experienced as utopias, like they are 
they are fun. There is mm. a, a thrill there. Um, you know, when you win or whatever, or just, you know, in the, the tense moments. Yeah, Apex are kind of epitomizes that in a way that is the, the fictional setup as well. It's presented as like a game as well. It's within the world. It's, it's a game and it displays, mm-hmm. you know, it's got big banners with the, the, the players on this stuff you're talking about, but the player being the hero. It's like displayed, um, within the world. Like it's very clearly making it into a thing for you to, uh, experience as something that you win. Like that's the the be all and end all of it, and yeah, turning turning the survival into a thrill, and it's almost uh, so it's clearly like a, a social Darwinian kind of logic here of you know scavenging mm-hmm. for survival, uh, you know, scavenging for items. All these games, you start with nothing, you have to scavenge, and then you it's your ability to make. Uh, to do what you can with the resources that you happen to find that determines whether you overcome the other people and prove that you're better than them, essentially. Um, yeah. That's... Uh, uh, yeah, sorry, go on. Oh, yeah, I just... Uh, Apex Legends, like, like you're talking about, has those big screens, right? I, I just want to, like, concretize the example. It, literally in the game, you can look at, at cliff faces or walls and there are giant screens that display who's number one right now or who's the kill leader or things like that. Um, weirdly enough, it takes a lot of, at least to my mind, takes a lot of design um, concepts from The Running Man. Um, and in The Running Man, right, it's it's pretty clear that like the bloodthirsty audience who loves it, they're, they are ethically compromised in some way. Mm. Um, but w- by the time we get to Apex Legends, right, like, no, that's that's the ideal spectator position is like hungrily watching people rend each other limb from limb. Um, so I, yeah, it's dystopian in that particular way too, of, of forgetting maybe some of the cynicism of its, um, references. Yeah. That's complete. That, that's, that's, uh, what I'm trying to get at. That is completely oh, absent that. No, no, no. I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, sort of coming to that point. You explained it in a nice and clear way. That's what I was, that's what I was trying to, to say. The cynicism is completely absent in there. It's, it's presented purely as enjoyment. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's, that's interesting to me in the, in view of, uh, a lot of young people today are very aware of the potential of, uh, a, a future, a, a post climate catastrophe future. Um, you can see that in terms of the uh, levels of protest that are happening at the moment that young people are involved in. I think they're very aware of it. Um, they they may be facing a word, a world, where resources are very scarce. Yeah, I, I wonder if there's, I don't know if this is a bit of a, a simplistic reading or uh, I don't know if overdetermined is the right word, but there might be something going on there in terms of remapping this this fear of what a, a, a scarce, a resource scarce world where you're kind of having to, to fight to survive in some way, that's being remapped as a kind of a challenge that's fun to approach mm-hmm. do you think there's anything in that or am i uh reaching a bit too far <laughs> i mean i i think there to some degree i don't think you're i don't think you're reaching but i think that there really is a cultural element to it because uh i mean you're you're in the uk right uh, i'm in germany oh okay well so in the uk and germany in a general sense i used to live in uh, the uk obviously i am yeah i am british yeah 
but in Europe or, or just not in the United States. <laughs> Let me say this: in the in the U.S., I think there is a similar anxiety, um, but there are also a lot of people who just don't believe in climate change. I mean, that that is a real thing. I mean, I'm I've been teaching at the university level for six, seven years, something like that now. Um, and uh, across a lot of different demographics and in a lot of different contexts, teaching a lot of different courses. Um, and th this semester I'm teaching a class on pessimism, um, to which we've, you know, we talk about the Anthropocene and climate change and things like that. And whereas in Europe and particularly the UK right now, um, we're just seeing large protest movements, particularly around the youth. Um, my students are largely hopeless, like truly and utterly hopeless and not involved in social change or social um, justice issues that are around climate, climate justice issues, I guess uh, we could call them. Mm -hmm. um, they are not politicized around it and mm -hmm. they are overwhelmed by it, which seems to be, you know, the, obviously the potential for like reactionary politics is, is there when you have that combination of things. And so I, I you know, I don't, remapping probably is the best word i don't know but i think that working out those anxieties in a setting that metaphorizes or allegor allegorizes um those things probably is the best shot that they have and i honestly don't know if they know that they're doing it um yeah i don't i don't i don't know i think there's a comfort in the idea that uh battle royale games provide a meritocracy and mm -hmm. that you can um, somehow persevere out. And weirdly enough, a lot of people that I've talked to about these games will say things like, oh, you know what? I won, and I'm really glad that I won uh, that last game, but I just got matched with someone who was really good, and they carried me the whole way. Mm -hmm. um, and that, to me, is a very interesting allegory as well. <laughs> that, that is, that's seen as a feature of the system, right? Not, not as a bug that, oh, you know, it's a... It's, uh, Everyone starts from zero, but thankfully I was randomly paired with someone who carried me the whole way to winning the thing. Um, so I think a lot of things get mapped onto these games um, and a lot of a big bundle of affects in the way that all video games, right, end up with a weird big bundle of affects. Um, something I've said before in that um, I think only holds more and more true and kind of makes me more and more angry is that it's easy to find meaning. Um, e very easy within video games to find a place for someone to latch onto with whatever politics or whatever um, conceptual apparatus they have. And so I absolutely think that there are people who are working through their issues with the climate and the oncoming climate catastrophe within video games. And I also think there are people who are completely blocking that out with this fantasy of immaterial meritocracy at the exact same time. And I think it says something about the battle royale genre that it can afford both of those things equally without any contradiction. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the, yeah, the meritocracy thing, you can, you, you can read it as kind of like expression of like the, the you know, the capitalist value of, of competition because, mm -hmm. you know, it's what your, the resources you collect and, and what you do with it. But yeah, as I say, that's experience of when you get, carried um i'm sure we're, i'm sure if there's any um millionaires playing it and they get carried they think that they deserve to win they don't um they probably blind to the idea of uh getting being lucky in any way uh, they just <laughs> you know what i mean yeah 
<laughs> but, um, yeah. it's, it's, that, that's, that's a feature. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, what, uh, one of the things I just wanted to go back to is you, you've, you've mentioned quite a few times, like you've linked the, the whole genre quite a few times to like YouTube and mm-hmm. the kind of culture around that or, the, or uh, what YouTube kind of inevitably creates. Like, do you see there being like a kind of intrinsic link between like the development of these games and like YouTube. Yeah, a hundred percent. YouTube and Twitch live streaming. Um, I don't think that these games could exist without those platforms. Um, and the reason I say that is that what the, what content creators on YouTube and Twitch are looking for are games that their community can be familiar with the basic rules of, but that offer novel experiences over and over again. Um, and so Battle Royale games, I think, are the, at least to some degree, the the logical output of a need uh, in that system, kind of political economy, in the sense of political economy. You, you can't play a single player game uh, and get novelty, you know, a single player narrative game and get novelty out of it moment by moment. But you can play Counter-Strike. And so, you know, there are a lot of popular Counter-Strike players. Um, you can play MOBAs like Dota 2 or League of Legends, and those games led the Twitch charts, the Twitch streaming charts for years and years, particularly League of Legends. And you can play multiplayer first-person shooter games. Um, what is better about a Battle Royale game over, say, playing a Battlefield game multiplayer is that a Battle Royale game um, has a higher... Um, skill level to entry um, in the sense of if you're playing these games you have to well you should be doing something with squad tactics in PUBG in particular you were almost certainly on chat with your teammates things like mm. that and so that means that that novelty or in, in 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 a battlefield game right you might be playing the I don't know the Paris Fields map or something like that in Battlefield 1 or, or in Battlefield 5 um, and you might be playing that um and go into that house, and people might camp there, and people might, uh, I don't know, fire from the windows very often. But for the most part, those people aren't going to be playing in, with squad tactics. It's going to be you running into there, and either they shoot you, or you lose. Uh, or <laughs> they shoot you, or you shoot them, I guess. Um, whereas in, in PUBG, for example, or any of the Battle Royale games, the uh number of possible options that could could happen of some a team being in a house and then you trying to take that house are massive right they could jump out the windows they could jump out of a door at the top they could try to camp on the stairs and fire down at you they could try to negotiate uh you could throw grenades up into it and then they could split into two different groups one who's camping and one who's trying to assault their way down there's just so much ability for novelty um and if there's something that a market loves it's novelty (laughs) Hmm. um and so i don't think it's any um i don't think it's any coincidence that the rise of battle royale games is coincidental with the rise of twitch and youtube as platforms or the continued descendants of those platforms um and kind of trading off as far as viewers are concerned with MOBAs, with other first-person shooters, things like that. Um, other people, this is something that's not unique to me. Many people have said this, but in, in a Battle Royale game, other people become the content. And if you can monetize that, 
by being a Twitch partner or by being a popular YouTuber, then you stand to make a lot of, or gain a lot of subscribers, gain a lot of viewers, and ultimately probably make a lot of money. Mm. Do you think, so they, they uh, I'm going to kind of try and link two things here. So this, this kind of link to YouTube and this way that, kind of the the most popular as you said the, the success depends on youtube in some way so in a sense now if you're a big developer making a game you have to be thinking about you have to be thinking about streamers twitch and youtube and you have to be catering to that if you want your game to be the you know the next big thing well, that's uh, does that make sense first of all yeah I, yeah i think okay. you absolutely are doing that yeah yeah so and the other thing is um Games are increasingly catered towards. Um, so, there's, when you're saying about, you know, they want for variety because the market likes that. Part of the reason for that is they want to have games that keep people in. So, games now are very focused on keeping one person playing just your game. Um, they're games that can be, they're not games that you can start and finish and then it's over. They're games that you can just repeat in a cycle. And they can keep putting more things in there to keep you playing these games. So do you think those two things are kind of inherently linked to what we're talking about in terms of these games not being able to engage with the the kind of themes around their dystopias earnestly? Um, as we've said, this, these are dystopias, but they're just, there's no uh, engagement with that and they're experienced almost in, in the opposite way. So yeah, they have to. They, they, it create. It seems to create this culture where the focus is very much on. Say you, the, the, somebody who's playing Twitch plays the game, and the, the focus is very much on. Oh, this gun does too much damage, and um, uh, this character needs to be buffed in that, and that feeds into the community. And you know, developers are then they're always talking about how they want to listen to people's feedback. And so you have well, on one hand this very focus on the very um nitty-gritty like mechanics, and you have this whole culture of like catering to an audience that's playing your game. You're trying to cycle them into a market. So without I'm um, trying to be too old man yells at clouds, like do you think this um yeah, there's this is gonna be kind of an inevitable part of games that are being made in this context that they're not going to be able to engage with themes like this in a kind of earnest way. Yeah. I mean, I think absolutely. Uh, so I guess I, I have, I have two pseudo answers to this. Um, so one is, I think you're hundred percent right. Um, the, the language that we have for this, right. Is games as a service. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, that's world of Warcraft that stretches back to MMOs, massively multiplayer online games um like world of warcraft and then into things like destiny so the idea is you know when destiny was launched the pitch behind that game or the marketing lingo was this is the game you'll be playing for the next 10 years everyone wants to be making the game you'll be playing for the next 10 years so everything of course feeds right back into the system um so yes so so on that side i uh, on on the other end too the, the other kind of pseudo answer i have is that um, my dissertation is partially on the nature of ending. 
Um, and of course, everyone loves to hear it when you talk about your dissertation. That's the most popular <laughs> academic to topic of all time. Um, but it, it is about the nature of ending. What does it mean to end something um, and, to, and to make it stop? Not just on narrative terms, but kind of ontologically or metaphysically. Um, and I think that's exceedingly difficult even when you are attempting to put a stop on something, right? So um, I don't know, the end of Brave New World or something like that, you know, that well, I guess it was revisited, so it's not, that's not maybe the most uh, appropriate uh, thing. But, you know, traditional narrative, it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. You're supposed to think about it as time goes on. Afterward, you can revisit it, but ultimately, it is over. As mm -hmm. opposed to things that are meant for enfranchisement, right? To, to be turned into a franchise. So, um, you know, we had the language of, and I've written about this several times, we had the language of transmedia in the early 2000s. Or actually, that's actually from the early 90s and only became popular up through the early 2000s. And then you had stuff like Henry Jenkins' spreadable media, which is kind of a, a media pattern for, or media theory for how do you generate things that live beyond, beyond the object. Um, I think you're right that Apex Legends, for example, has to kick the ending down the road forever, and so you can't ever really get the aha moment of the dystopia, right? You know, mm. you, you need the end of the Running Man to then go back and say, "Oh, like, you know, look how deeply cynical this whole object is," or um, the end of Verhoeven Starship Troopers, right, where um, Neil Patrick Harris touches the alien mind, the bug mind, and says, "It's afraid, it's afraid," <laughs> like, and that's this triumphant horrible moment right of of like this fascist politics yeah. um so you can't ever have that right because the ending never comes for you to like retrospectively evaluate the whole object so that's one problem on the other hand this is all of our media in all fields right so um in the podcast world you know you have big breakout hits like serial which is ostensibly a serial uh you know beginning middle and end about a murder or, or a case rather and lo and behold it can't end right it has to keep producing new different types of content in it or you know we have the marvel cinematic universe which is just the the capital ball rolling downhill for eternity right like it's mm. never going to stop despite us you know end game is coming out sometime around right now. i'm not sure when this episode drops but end game is either out or will be out soon and its whole pitch is look we're ending all these things but guess what's going to start again right um and they already have a full slate of movies announced for for afterward so this is everything right apex legends and the problem of Dealing with the actual politics of your object in a in a finite and encapsulated way is basically impossible, um, and that's partially what what you know. Not to plug my own writing again, but partially at Waypoint, that's the the writing I've been trying to do for the past couple of years is how do you draw some boundary lines between these objects that just spread everywhere? Their, their tendrils are everywhere. How do you draw some boundary objects to figure out what they mean and what they do and how they act on people um, and how they generate aesthetic experience when that aesthetic experience is coming from all angles and for eternity and, you know, your grandkids are going to be watching <laughs> Iron Man movies. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what do you do about it? Um, I think it's hard. I think I think to to generate a response to something, you have to be able to draw boundaries on it. And our media ecosystem right now is very invested in not being able to draw boundaries because it needs to monetize every vector. Um, yeah. So, so it's this, a hard problem. 
sorry so it's, it's not this this isn't just about like the culture of youtube then it's it's also kind of just the, the kind of hyper capitalistic approach to producing art i guess and um yeah that that i've been going through um capitalist realism a bit for um some of the patreon episodes and there's this idea in there of um that comes from frederick jameson about the the uh kind of history disappearing within like late capitalism yeah and that's interesting to me that as you say now our culture kind of it's just like a, a perpetual these pieces of, of of art or however you want to call them um they're just like in a perpetual present they never get to their end point there's always the next bit and yeah that's interesting that they kind of reflect that absence of history uh i think that's probably not entirely coincidental yeah i mean i think i think it's in capitalist realism where fisher talks about hearing valerie the amy winehouse song uh-huh i haven't got back to that bit yet but so i can't remember that but it's in one of his books but he talks about hearing it and thinking that it's the original song from the 60s that the i think the zootons were covering in their version but their version is the original so it's his kind of illustration of of this eternal present in late capitalism it's somewhere in mark fisher and i i think about that a lot it might be a couple of years i've just said i've only i'm sort of going through chapter by chapter i haven't got of any up to chapter three so it's might may just be later gotcha. but but yeah i mean that's that is apex legends or that is call of duty right i mean um and even how these games this is not necessarily battle royale related but um in order to satisfy the need for content right from a player base and from from a video making public who needs to monetize all of this and, and desires to monetize all this i think you end up with weird things like uh call of duty modern warfare Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare, which got remastered a couple years ago, um, and just the graphics are updated. Um, and there's a large culture of remasters right now of taking games from generally the mid-2000s, so like 2004, 5, 6, uh, 7, 8, 9, maybe somewhere in there, um, mm. and just updating the graphics and maybe adding some quality of life changes, but then largely just re-releasing those. Um and it's very cost effective, I think, for for the development studios to do it. And it's also future proofing their content to some degree. You create the remaster now, and then you can update, you know, shaders or processing effects or whatever. And then when the next console cycle comes along, you can re-release it for that. And it looks a little bit better. And the next one comes along. So I think that that remasters are a part of this too, of 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 you know, Assassin's Creed 2 being a game of the eternal present always being able to play it from here into infinity um, as opposed to saying something like oh you know oh it came out a way long time ago and i would have to go buy a new console to do it so this this is everywhere i think i think you're right um and it's just about drawing boundaries to talk about it mm. yeah there's an element of that in like film and stuff in terms of remakes and so on but yeah it, it kind of there's a it has a kind of pure expressions in video games where you can literally just like re-release the, the same thing um so yeah, that's yeah. yeah. Um, uh, another thing I wanted to talk about was something I read, which you wrote about um, Battlefield Hours, which is you kind of um, talking about the way that the market, um, sort of sorry, the the games kind of mirror the market of Battle Royales. So I wonder if you could kind of explain uh, a bit about. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, this is a piece I wrote for Waypoint a few weeks ago. Um, and basically my argument was that Battle Royale games are about a lot of competitors 
entering into a a single space and then one emerging successful. Um, But that happens game after game after game. So, you know, you and I can go play PUBG right now and I can get eliminated. and You can get a little bit further, but we can reset and in 15 minutes be playing another game of PUBG where the same thing happens over and over again. So my, my argument in the piece is that this is, in fact, how Battle Royale's games as a genre have played out over the past couple years. Um, a game enters into the space, uh, you know, the, the marketplace of Battle Royale games, and it explodes onto the scene. And a couple weeks later, it, it is either gone and forgotten about, or it is kind of ascendant, and it's the new popular thing. I mean, people talked about Apex Legends is kind of still at the top of the hill right now, and people have talked about it as the the Battle Royale game to end all Battle Royale games. Um, but I promise that in six months, we're going to be talking about something else. Yes. If I'm wrong, that's that's great. That would be very interesting. Um, but I don't think I am wrong. I think I'm... I think. Uh, that's the way that this works out. Yeah, I just, I just um, want to say, I, th- I think it's hard to understate for people who don't know just how kind of how kind of hyper accelerated this process is. Like, it's happened really <laughs> quickly. Like the the rate, like it's kind of instructive that like um, I forgot to mention uh, Call of Duty. Um, what was it? What's the battle rail? Uh, blackout. Yeah, blackout. Because that kind of that was an example of one that kind of came out flamed up to a degree but then very quickly it was just kind of like nobody's talking about that anymore and then yeah it's like it's it's kind of happening in like a matter of weeks sometimes that these oh yeah absolutely or in a weekend right (laughs) um you know there was radical heights which was uh uh cliff blazinski's company's uh, game uh, that came out that was out for two weeks, I think, before that company folded. Um, there was Realm Royale, uh, made by Hi-Rez, which came out, and literally, I'm not, I'm not joking, <laughs> I, this, this is not a exaggeration, came out and was the top of Twitch charts the weekend it came out. I mean, right, it is literally the number one most viewed game on the planet, the weekend it comes out, and then two weeks later, I, I there's no one talking about it. It's not in the top 10 or 20. Um, it is nil. It is gone <laughs> from the consciousness. Um, and this is a game that costs millions of dollars to develop, right? And thousands of hours of, of developer time. And it's just wiped off the map. And if I didn't tell you about it, you would not even know that it existed. Um, and, and so, yeah, you know, similar to the, the also rans of a PUBG game or a game of Fortnite, right? Mm. You just weren't able to compete. Um, but it regrounds this kind of mechanics of meritocracy in the marketplace. Um, you know, Fortnite is good. Fortnite is great. Fortnite is made by Epic, which is one of the, the biggest game development and, um, game uh tool creation right they, they make the unreal engine which mm-hmm. is kind of the the game engine that fuels a huge number of games um and they're partially owned by tencent um which is one of the largest game companies on the planet if not the largest as far as monetization so yeah that's a they're they're the fantasy of meritocracy is alive and well everywhere <laughs> yeah and this thing yeah there could be only one um yeah, which is yeah. is how it plays out, which I don't know feels kind of unhealthy uh, in lots of ways. I think. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's bad. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but because it it means that uh, everyone is chasing the flavor of the week, um, which means that a game that might have a rocky start or might not have the kind of depth that we want initially just rarely gets a second go. Um, so for you know this week, you mentioned earlier kind of uh, patch note videos and things like that when a game mm. patch comes out that rebalances things. And so Apex Legends had a patch come out what this week or the end of the last week. Yeah. Um, that w- that's kind of controversial. It's changed a lot of weapon balances and things like that. And that's something that that game could not afford to do in the first week of it coming out. Um, mm. You know, it has to wait two months into its production cycle in order to really create a rebalancing patch because you have to make sure you're not alienating people who are feeling like they are becoming enfranchised in the game. You can't change the rules up underneath them. You also can't afford to make the YouTubers angry. You also can't afford to disrupt the ecosystem of people writing guides about the best places to find loot or the best weapons to pick up, because that's a huge part of this whole thing. Um, You can't afford to create conditions under which Twitch streamers can't adjust and adapt appropriately, because if they're doing bad at your game or performing poorly at your game, they will just play something else that night. Um, so there are a lot of contingent relationships that ultimately end up looking a little bit like a battle royale game. Mm. Uh, it feels like it kind of um, capitalism is always exerting a pressure on what's being made um, because we live within capitalism and that's a totalizing system. So it's always going to influence what uh, what's being produced in some way, um, if it's even if not immediately obvious but at the same time it feels like it this it's being kind of accelerated or extended by this kind of relationship because if you're making say like a single player game that people be being played offline sure you're still making it for a market but in some sense there's there's a you're not like in direct contact with your audience necessarily and you can make the thing and as we've talked about it can have an ending which i think as you suggested is really important in terms of having some sense of uh evaluation or reflection both in terms of the the person what they're creating and the, the person playing it but um yeah that's no longer there because you're you're always connected to your audience and so this this thing of making something for the consumer becomes acutely focused like that's your whole that's the whole thing like like you said you can't upset the the players and release and they're asking you to change certain things you've got to keep them happy it all becomes hyper focused on like the consumer relationship which as i say i think is there anyway but it's yeah more pronounced perhaps yeah, the the role, it, this is something that, that other people have written about as well, and I wish I could summon up an article um, to cite for people, but um, there's increasingly the feeling in games culture and in the games press, I think, that uh, that the single player experience is the promotional experience. And the multiplayer experience is the monetizable. Yeah, like a kind of prestige um, single player. Yeah, absolutely. So if you look at the way that that Sony, for example, at last year's E3, and Sony aren't doing this year's E3, which is very interesting, but um, last year at E3, right, they really only were interested in talking about four major games. You know, Sekiro, Shadows Die Twice was one, uh, The Last of Us 2 
these are big prestige um, mm-hmm. games, right? Single player experiences. Um, they are there in order to say, look at what we have accomplished. God of War is very similar to this as well. Um, and I, I don't think it's the case that a single player game can't do well in the marketplace, but the brutal reality is, is that it just can't, it, it can't monetize for as long. It's kind of a one and done, right? Um, and if you're able to put your entire platforms, uh, marketing behind it in the way that they did with God of War, you make it a prestige product. You make it the thing that chases awards, right? God of War has won lots and lots of awards from various different institutions worldwide. When you do that, then you create the thing that you build your reputation on. This, I think, begins to look a whole lot like um, the Oscars do for uh, Hollywood, which is they need tentpole, summer tentpole things in order to really monetize their audience. But they would really like to make things as well that generate some sort of artistic merit um, or generate rewards that, that are rewarding artistic merit, things mm-hmm. like that. Um, and so, you know, it's always been a truism that the thing that sells consoles is not whatever your favorite single player game is. The, the thing that sells consoles is Madden um, that's the, or Call of Duty. Though that's been true for a decade now. Um, I just think it is becoming more and more pronounced. And I think more and more games that have that or want to have that single player experience are having to fold that into it. You know, I'm thinking of games like The Division that, um, you know, the politics are bad. <laughs> like, you know, no way around it. The politics are awful, but it is it is a single player story game to some degree. It has all the beats and all the missions, but folded within that are all kinds of ways of monetizing your audience, all kinds of ways of generating multiplayer uh, interesting stuff, the ability to replay dungeons and content over and over again. Um, and I increasingly think that that's where the majority of games go. Um, I think I just think that Battle Royales are like, if not Madden or Battlefield, then what? And it's Battle Royale games. But every game is going to have some form of that going forward. Every game that's really being pushed mm. is going to have some form of that going forward. Um, and that's fine. You know, it, it, it it's the marketplace and it, it pushes on the production. But this is where I'm going to make my pitch always for indie games and independent games. Go to itch.io, I-T-C-H dot I-O. Um, which is a uh, independent marketplace that that isn't owned by any of the conglomerates, and you can find lots of small independent games that are doing things that that many of us enjoy games for, but kind of unplugged from the producer publisher uh, ecosystem that that is limiting aesthetic production. So I'm glad you said that because I was just about to say we're kind of uh, <laughs> we're kind of moving towards ending on a very dystopian note there. So yeah, I'm glad you pointed out that there are. There are places you can go where this kind of um, yeah the the focus on monetization isn't there, um, and yeah there are people like starting to make um, like work co-ops and stuff now within video games as well, mm-hmm. and obviously they yeah, are absolutely. then yeah their their kind of motivation is not necessarily to chase the thing that will that they can make the most uh, money out of over the longest period of time so. Yeah, there's still always going to be people like not following these trends and like making interesting stuff. Not that battle royales aren't interesting. I should say that because I like them. But um, yeah, there's plenty of other stuff. Yeah, yeah. there. Exactly. Yeah. Um, 
and and part of you know i i think that my writing um it is tactically very specifically it is about half about big games that i think i have something interesting to say about and uh the other half is about very small games that I think people might not be aware of. And I, I try to be very careful, and sometimes you can't hit that balance uh, due to timing or whatever or interest. Um, but I try to do that because there are lots and lots of interesting things that are being produced that just don't get eyeballs because of the ability for larger companies to crowd the attention marketplace, right? I mean, they're very good at turning... Um, about converting people into players um, that's how apex they basically paid the biggest streamers to stream it when they released it so yeah everybody saw it that's yeah. yep <laughs> they paid one guy like uh they paid one guy like a million dollars to yeah play their game yeah so and that makes sense right i mean that you know that's that's basic that's that is good old fashioned monopoly capital, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like you you double down on your strengths and you expend as much money, you bleed money, uh, in order to dominate the marketplace. It's not something that's often talked about, but this is like my thing that my my horse I like to get on. This is what Nintendo did uh, with the original NES in the United States. They literally spent their way into market dominance. Um, and it's not the result. The common narrative is, you know, the American video game collapses or American video game market collapses in 1984-ish, before 1984. And it's because there was a glut of bad games. And Nintendo came along and they made good games. And so then, therefore, they saved video games. That is not the case at all. If you look at the history there, they bought their way into people's homes and living rooms um, and marketed their way there. So... Things remain unchanged, um, but but hopefully, and I encourage everyone who's listening to this to go go to itch.io and check some stuff out um, because there's lots of cool things being made that that just don't get the attention that it deserves or that they deserve. Yeah, sure. Okay, well, um, thank you for coming on to talk to me. It's been fun. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, where should people go if they want to find like some of the other stuff you're doing? Um, Twitter is probably the, the best place, uh, at C Kunzelman, K-U-N-Z-E-L-M-A-N. Um, and then you can see our videos that we do as well as our podcasts, uh, at ranged touch. And you can find us on Twitter at R-A-N-G-E-D-T-O-U-C-H. Um, we have a couple shows. One is mages and murder dads, uh, where we play through, or have been playing through all of the isometric RPGs, so Baldur's Gate and and mm. uh, the others in there. Um, so if you like that, <laughs> that's that's something to check out. And then, uh, as you mentioned earlier, Game Studies Study Buddies, where we read academic ga- books of game studies, and then kind of Cliff's Notes them for you. Um, the episodes are very long, <laughs> but uh, hopefully informative. People seem to like it. So Yeah. Very good. I'm yeah. I'm up to about eight, I think, but I'm I'm slowly making my way through. Ooh, almost caught up. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Um, cheers, Cameron. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That is the end of my conversation with Cameron. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with an episode on the four-day working week, um, which I think is a very interesting and worthwhile um thing to be uh fighting for and that will be out probably about a week from now if you have any uh questions or comments on this episode or any others get in touch with me on utopian horizons pod at gmail.com tweet me at utopian horizons your 
reviews on um, iTunes or whatever you listen on would be greatly appreciated. It'd be especially helpful now over the next few weeks, as um, next couple of months, as I'm releasing more episodes to kind of potentially get the podcast up the charts a bit. Um, I don't know whether that'll happen or not, but certainly won't if you don't give me reviews. So that that would be great. And as I mentioned at the uh, beginning, there's loads of bonus episodes uh, available on patreon.com slash utopian horizons which you can get for um five dollars a month you can get access to all of all of those so yeah please consider checking that out as well thanks for listening see you soon